You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today. everyone. Thanks for downloading episode number 74 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Welcome to the podcast. Last week, we looked at the Battle of Ball's Bluff, which took place along the Potomac River near Leesburg, Virginia, on October 21st, 1861. This week, we're going to look at one of the unfortunate consequences of the Union disaster at Ball's Bluff. That is, the persecution of Brigadier General Charles Stone by the Joint Committee on the Conduct of the War. After the committee selected him as its scapegoat for Ball's Bluff, and after he made a personal enemy of Senator Charles Sumner of Massachusetts, Stone would be arrested in early February 1862 and taken to New York, where he was confined first at Fort Lafayette, then at Fort Hamilton. He remained in prison for just over six months, during which time no formal charges were ever filed against him. During his confinement, Stone never got a hearing or a response to his many pleas for information. Charles Stone was released in August 1862 without any more explanation than had been given for his arrest. But just how had he come to find himself in such a wretched predicament in the first place? The answer to that question is one of the more shameful, unhappy stories of the Civil War, a story in which a promising officer is done in by partisan politics and personal grudges. Charles Pomeroy Stone was a West Pointer, class of 1845. He served during the Mexican War, impressing Winfield Scott with his performance during the Siege of Veracruz and while in command of heavy artillery at the Battles of Molino del Rey and Chapultepec. Stone won brevets for his conduct at both of those engagements and left Mexico as a brevet captain. After the war, he served on the West Coast before resigning from the Army in 1856 to go into private business to better provide for his wife and children. While working in California in the banking business, Stone became good friends with another soldier-turned-banker, William Tecumseh Sherman. Charles Stone claimed to be the very first official United States volunteer of the Civil War. At a meeting with Stone on the last day of 1860, Winfield Scott asked Stone to re-enter the Army and see to the defense of Washington. Stone accepted and was duly commissioned a colonel and named Inspector General of the District of Columbia. He later wrote, I was mustered into the service of the United States from the second day of January 1861 on the special requisition of the General-in-Chief, and thus was the first of two and a half millions called into the military service of the government to defend it against secession. 
Stone was in charge of the defense of Washington during those first tension-filled months of 1861. He effectively purged secessionists from key positions in the District of Columbia militia and then directed the security arrangements for Abraham Lincoln's inauguration ceremonies on March 4th. In early June, Stone led a month-long operation designed to protect the Chesapeake and Ohio Canal and to guard the river crossings along the Potomac as far north as Harper's Ferry. This assignment familiarized him with a part of Maryland across the river from Leesburg, Virginia. On August 12th, Stone, now a brigadier general, assumed command of a brigade, which gradually grew in size into the 12,000-man, division-sized force that he commanded at the time of the Battle of Balls Bluff. As y'all already know from last week's episode, the battle that developed at Balls Bluff was a disaster for the Union. As part of a half-baked plan to pressure the Confederates into withdrawing from Leesburg, Major General George McClellan issued broad and vague discretionary orders to Stone, whose division occupied the Maryland side of the Potomac, opposite Leesburg. Stone decided to launch a raid on the Virginia shore, but he ended up leaving the main responsibility for the action at Ball's Bluff to Colonel Edward Baker, who was a sitting U.S. Senator and a personal friend of Abraham Lincoln. Baker badly mismanaged his mission, and the result was a complete defeat for the Union force engaged at Ball's Bluff. Baker was killed, and of the 1,700 Federal troops involved in the fight, more than 200 were killed, as many more were wounded, and over 500 were taken prisoner by the victorious Confederates. Someone was bound to be held responsible for such an unmitigated disaster, and since the officer most responsible for it, Baker, was quickly turned into a martyred hero, that left Charles Stone, and he made an uncommonly good scapegoat upon which radical Republicans could affix the blame for Ball's Bluff. Stone, like McClellan and many other Army officers, was a Democrat who had no sympathy for Republicans or abolitionists, whom most Democrats held to be only slightly less responsible for the war than Southern fire-eaters. To make matters worse for Stone, he had ordered his men to return runaway Maryland slaves to their owners. Early in the war, Stone was hardly the only federal officer to do this. In fact, his actions were in keeping with the orders of his superiors and in accord with the official policy of the government at that point in the war. But in November, when the soldiers of a Massachusetts regiment carried out Stone's orders with two fugitive slaves, the incident earned him the wrath of two powerful Republican politicians from the Bay State, Governor John Andrew and Senator Charles Sumner. When Andrew demanded that Secretary of War Simon Cameron prevent any repetition of the fugitive slave incident, Stone resented the governor's interference and rather unwisely compared Andrew to the governor of South Carolina. And then Stone made an even bigger blunder after Sumner savaged him in a speech on the floor of the Senate. An indignant Stone responded directly to the senator, all but challenging Sumner to a duel and calling him a, quote, well-known coward, end quote. This was obviously a reference to the infamous incident in 1856 when Sumner was viciously attacked in the Senate chamber by Congressman Preston Brooks of South Carolina. At any rate, after Sumner's speech and Stone's response to it, from that point on, the senator did everything in his considerable power to ruin the Army officer's career. 
Meanwhile, the Joint Select Committee on the Conduct of the War met for the first time on December 10, 1861. Sumner was not a member of the Joint Committee, though he wielded considerable influence over it through fellow radical Republicans who were. Sumner's friend and political ally, Senator Benjamin Wade of Ohio, was the committee's chairman. Sumner would use his influence with the committee to ensure Charles Stone's fall. Having made an enemy of Sumner, General Stone's persecution at the hands of the committee would have less to do with Ball's Bluff than with what one army officer later called, quote, the blatant vaporings of a prejudiced senator, end quote. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Livesey from the History of the Second World War podcast. My podcast is a mostly chronological retelling of the Second World War, and I hope you will join me on a journey through the most cataclysmic conflict in human history as we try to answer the questions of not just what and where, but how and why. Join me on a journey not just through the famous campaigns, battles, and events, but also on a trip around the globe as we broaden the scope of Second World War history beyond the well-known battlefields of Europe and the Pacific. During weekly episodes, I seek to provide new insight for longtime students of the war, while also being a great jumping-on point for anyone seeking a deeper understanding of the Second World War. This podcast has made it to the invasion of Poland in 1939, and start listening now to find out how the world would find itself embroiled in its second worldwide conflict in just 20 years. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at History of the Second World War. When the Republican-controlled 37th Congress convened in early December 1861, frustration with the state of military affairs, suspicion about the reliability of many army officers, and discontent over the slavery issue all came to a head and led to the creation of the Joint Committee on the Conduct of the War on December 10th. From the Senate, two Republicans and one Democrat were selected to sit on the committee, while from the House, three Republicans and a single Democrat were chosen. As Rich mentioned a moment ago, Senator Benjamin Wade from Ohio chaired the committee. While the Committee on the Conduct of the War is commonly thought to be the notorious creation of the Radical Republicans, it should be pointed out that at this point in time, in December 1861, many Democrats in Congress were equally unhappy with the state of the war, and they overwhelmingly supported the establishment of the committee. 
The resolution creating the committee granted it broad authority to examine all aspects of the war and gave it, quote, the power to send for person and papers, end quote. With such a mandate, it's not surprising that the committee delved into many subjects, everything from investigating fraud in government war contracts to examining allegations of Confederate atrocities. But the committee's principal focus was scrutinizing the handling of northern military operations, particularly those involving the Army of the Potomac. In a sense, during the war, the Joint Committee was a critical, irksome backseat driver, constantly peering over the shoulder of Union military commanders. Just one of the problems with this was that the committee members, especially Benjamin Wade, lacked any sort of firm understanding of military affairs. For them, the conduct of the war was more a matter of politics and machismo than of strategy and military science. As a group, the committee members were woefully ignorant of military matters. Unlike President Lincoln, who recognized his ignorance of military issues and who earnestly sought to learn and understand the complexities involved, the committee members believed they already knew all that was essential with regard to the way the war ought to be run, and so they persisted in expressing opinions on strategy, tactics, weaponry, and logistics that were amateurish and unrealistic. Sadly, the leading Republicans on the committee tended to use political considerations to judge the performance of military officers. Regardless of competence, the committee tended to support generals associated with anti-slavery principles and with the Republican Party, and sought to remove officers who attempted to remain neutral on the slavery issue and who were identified with the Democratic Party. Unfortunately for Charles Stone, very soon after the Joint Committee's creation, its investigation into the debacle at Ball's Bluff and his personal dispute with Senator Sumner coalesced, and he became both a target and a pawn in an effort by the committee to send not-so-subtle messages to the Lincoln administration and to General McClellan, messages regarding the committee's view of what the war was about and how it ought to be waged. But unfortunately for you guys, you'll have to wait until next week for the continuation of this story. We did forewarn you that this episode was going to be a short one, and so we're going to start to wrap things up. And we'll use the next show to look at what happened to Stone and to talk some more about the activities of the Joint Committee on the Conduct of the War. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is Controversies and Commanders of the Civil War, Dispatches from the Army of the Potomac by Stephen Sears. Sears' name will probably be familiar to many of you already from his excellent accounts of some of the Eastern Theater's major battles and campaigns. But this book, Controversies and Commanders of the Civil War, Dispatches from the Army of the Potomac, is also a really interesting book by him. It's really a series of essays following the Army of the Potomac throughout the war, looking at some of the key incidents and personalities involved in that army's remarkable story. And chapter two is called The Ordeal of General Stone. So there you go. As always, you can find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.blogspot.com. 
Before we sign off, we want to thank Jillian F. from California for her generous donation to the podcast this past week. Rich and I appreciate that, and we're also grateful for all of y'all who have left us those great reviews on iTunes, who liked the podcast on Facebook, and who have followed us on Twitter. Thanks, y'all. We'll be back next week with the rest of Charles Stone's story and to talk some more about the Committee on the Conduct of the War. But thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. We hope you'll join us again next time, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.